And we're back on Gravier Bra. I'm here with Jamal Karsandu, and we are screen off script. This week, we're getting into Napoleon and reflecting all the major movie and TV news of the week. I need to warn you. The storm is near. Napoleon is coming. All right. In our first segment, we're going to be talking all the news for this week. If you want to skip around to our spoiler-filled conversation in Napoleon, we got timestamps in the description. All right, gentlemen. I don't mean to do this all the time. Okay, you know what? Okay. I'm, I'm going to preface <laughs> all of this just off top, okay? I, I feel like a part of me doesn't want to, like, constantly be talking about Marvel and Disney. But, like, it feels like that's, like, the only news that comes out. Mm-hmm. Genuinely, sometimes, the entire news week is dominated by marvel news Fair. so as much as i personally like as much as i'm a marvel fan i'm still a marvel fan but i do sometimes i just have like a little bit of fatigue myself yeah, right where like i just don't care all the time you know what i mean like when the movie's coming out when the series is coming out sure but like sometimes it feels like it's like all right. the time mm-hmm. so this is another week where by the way, I don't feel like you're alone. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel like that. I think that's very fair. And mm-hmm. and a lot of the news just happens to be a lot of Marvel stuff. So I think this conversation kind of goes well with the news, to be honest. So mm-hmm. first thing is that Bob Iger, he said, along with a bunch of other executives, that Disney's main goal is now quality over quantity. They, they figured out wow. it's quality over quantity. This whole time they thought it was quantity over quality. I totally understand. That's a mistake <laughs> anybody can make. But uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think music to everyone's ears. You know, it's like the most obvious thing and the most obvious strategy you can uh, deploy. It's quite obvious that they got greedy. They launched Disney Plus and they thought, right, how can we rinse out this yeah. this rabid fan base that we've created and had them hooked in and paying us for the subscription fee and attend the movie theater three or four times a year for these movies. Yeah. And there's been a revolt and it's uh, quite shocking to see some of the results commercially. Yeah. And now they've had to pivot. The interesting thing is people have been talking about all of the success that they saw in like 2019. There was like seven movies that made like over a billion dollars. Right. This year, none of Disney's movies mm. have made over a billion dollars. And also, did you, I don't know if you saw the second week drop off of the Marvels is worse than the second week drop off of The Flash. That's which crazy. just tells you everything you need to know. This isn't a DC Marvel thing, yeah. but as a side-by-side comparison, that just tells you this is the latest offering in the theater by Disney slash Marvel Studios and it has not performed well at all. Absolutely. And uh, it actually ties in really well with what Edgar Wright was talking about because he says he wishes some major franchises took a breather to allow anticipation to build and let people get excited about them again. When they announce massive slates of films and TV, there's a danger of killing the golden goose. Mm. I couldn't agree more. Obviously, that's exactly what we're talking about. I think it also just says a lot about like kind of like what you said, where there's like a lot of greed involved. But at the same time, it's I, I, this does feel a little bit like lip service to me a mm. little bit, because until obviously, you know, you show us what you're doing and you give us the goods. Mm. I'm going to think it's lip service. That's right. number one. But yeah. number two, like a lot of this just feels like, oh, yeah, quality over quantity. Like, obviously, that's like a part of me just feels like they're kind of just talking and they haven't actually figured it out. But like at the very least, this is more optimistic yeah because at least the thought process is that you know what we got it wrong at least they're willing to like admit that much right and you're you're bang on people can absolutely take this just for pure lip service but as they say the proof is in the pudding now fortunately and we spoke about this last couple of weeks the only theatrical release currently slated for 2024 is deadpool 3 that's it And so hopefully it gives them enough time and breathing room so that whatever they release in 2025, 2026, by then we're we're, we're thirsty, we're we're really hungry for these new releases 
but hopefully they've got some time, like you said, to kind of nail the quality side of things. So uh, I think great insight came from uh, Iman Vellani, obviously Miss Marvel, where she was basically asked about how the MCU can regain endgame level hype. She right. said, I don't know if it's about getting bigger and bigger and bigger because then what's left? I think it's about making the audience care about their characters. Mm. Boom. That's exactly what I want to hear. Fantastic. And that's, but that's coming from her. That's not coming from like, you know, somebody who's a power position at Disney or something yeah, like that. Like an executive decision maker. Yeah, you know? somebody like that. But at the, at the end of the day, at least there's people who kind of understand. I feel like at least the public discourse is probably doing a good thing. It's probably letting Marvel know like where people are kind of feeling. Mm. And as long as they listen to people, I feel like it's going to be more positive. For that's sure. number one. Yeah. In some more news, Michael Waldron is now set to write supposedly both Avengers, the Kang Dynasty, and Secret Wars. So, uh, obviously, he did Multiverse of Madness, helped create Loki. Along with that, the rumor is also right now that Sam Raimi is the top choice to direct both those movies as well. Wow, I did not see that. Yeah. I saw the first part of that news, and I was like, yes, because he's proven with Loki he can do a fantastic job. Mm -hmm. Give him the opportunity to run with it with a a big theatrical release and a big movie experience. But Sam Raimi, interesting. I can't remember exactly, but overall... With Multiverse of Madness, were you happy with what Sam Raimi brought to the table? How did you feel about it? I was middle. Yeah. I was very middle. Okay, my thought was um, it, it was middle on the high end side, like mm. positive middle, I'd say. Right, right. But my thing has always been like, I like what he does with superhero movies, but he makes it so his style mm. that I don't really love it. Like, I don't know. I, I didn't grow up so affectionately loving the Spider-Man movies. Like, I get that a lot of people have that, mm-hmm. you know. I don't even have that much of an attachment to like any horror movies he does. Like if right. I'm being honest, like I'm just not that big of a Sam Raimi guy. Right. So when Multiverse of Madness came out, it felt like we were getting a Marvel movie, but a Sam Raimi version of that. Yeah. I don't want an Avengers movie, but a Sam Raimi version of that. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like I feel the, you. what I we got from Michael Waldron was like really, really interesting. Yeah. But it's because the execution was so fantastic and the choices that they made on a visual level and a story level, like performance level, all of that really gelled with me. Mm. I don't know if I felt that number one, same way about Multiverse of Madness. And if I'm being honest with a lot of choices that Sam Raimi makes for a lot of his superhero movies. So if I'm being honest, Michael Waldron, that's a big dub for me. Yeah. Sam Raimi, I'm a little up in the air. Yeah, I agree with you. And Listen, if Sam Raimi is an accomplished filmmaker, he's done big budget comic book movies a lot now at this point. If he can just deliver in these movies, but without adding his own personal DNA and fingerprints all over it, I think that's the move. And and maybe they can take some learning points away from Multiverse of Madness because there was a lot of criticism of that. It's like, okay, we want the the Marvel movie experience. We don't really necessarily want the Sam Raimi experience watching this movie. Yeah. Okay. Actually, some connective tissue with that. Taika Waititi said that he actually joined the MCU for the money, right? And I, I don't blame him at all. The exact quote was, I had no interest in doing one of those films, but I was poor and I just had a second child. And I thought, you know what? This would be a great opportunity to feed these children. And Thor, let's face it, was probably the least popular franchise. I never read a Thor comic as a kid. And then I did some research. I was still baffled by the character. He ended up obviously creating one of the best Marvel movies ever with Ragnarok. And then, you know, a lot of people didn't love Love and Thunder. I feel like he left on like a sour note, mm. but it shouldn't be a sour note if you, if you ask me, because like Thor was not like this beloved character that he is now. Yeah. That's purely because of Taika. Yeah. Right. And the transformation that he got to and the journey that we went through with Thor was purely because of him. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of people kind of blame him for Love and Thunder as if he did something like ridiculous. 
go watch Love and Thunder again and then watch some of these more recent other Marvel movies. And it might not be like the best thing ever, but it's certainly not among the worst. Like, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Like, that, that's like a bare minimum, at least. I don't blame him. And uh, we spoke about Rachel Zegler not too long ago about some of the decisions she's made in the last couple of years. Listen, at the end of the day, yeah, when you're broke and you come from nothing and you've got a multi-million dollar deal with a studio, of course you're going to take it. Mm-hmm. Like it's going to change your life and your family's life. You're a parent. You have to be responsible about how you're going to take care of your family long term. Yeah. I don't blame him for that decision. And a byproduct of that, even if he didn't no idea who Thor was and never read the comic. Like you said, he gave us arguably a top three greatest MCU movie of all time. Yeah. Like Ragnarok is this up there. Yeah. So for some people, it's their favorite, which I completely would be, yep, sure. I totally understand where you're coming from. Absolutely. It is, it's the, it, it, I think at this point for me, it's my most rewatched Marvel movie. Yeah. It's so rewatchable. It's so enjoyable. It's so entertaining. I really enjoy that movie a lot. Yeah, absolutely. For me, it's like right there. It's it's 1A or 1B with that and Guardians, the mm. first one. Yeah, yeah. And look, you know, he's about to go on in this Star Wars journey, um, which we've kind of talked about over the last couple of weeks. And but he's a Star Wars fan, so right. I, I'd say that's the difference. Yes, he obviously just told us that he wasn't a Marvel fan growing up, but he right. is a Star Wars fan. Right, I think those are two very different things. He probably knows a lot better of where he would fit. Yes, in, in the space of Star Wars, as opposed to like finding a space in Marvel where he can fit. Right, I think those are very different things. But he's also going into this Star Wars situation in a completely different stage of his life. Like he's now made his money. Yeah, right. He's had an opportunity to make these big IP franchise films for Mickey Mouse. Disney and now he's going to go and do it again but in a completely different world and completely different universe but he has to serve a passionate fan base of which he is part of yeah so I think that in that, that experience that you had with the Thor movies is going to serve him well for whatever he does with Star Wars I agree speaking of Thor Marvel Studios reportedly wants Thor 5 to have a darker tone compared to the two previous Thor films obviously what we were just talking about I think obviously that has to do with a lot of uh coming off love and thunder right but as they look for directors with more serious work, they put that in quotes. Uh, serious Gareth, work. Serious work. Jesus Christ. Gareth Edwards is one of the directors that they're looking at for Thor 5. Okay. I feel like that's not bad. Yeah, sure. I kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's actually absolutely fine from a tone perspective to go into a different direction because I don't know where you can take a Taika Waititi experience with Love and Thunder and Ragnarok. So to go a bit more darker, a bit more quote unquote serious. Yeah. At this stage of the Thor overall character arc why not i think that makes sense sure on top of that i really like the idea of adding gareth edwards to it because coming off the creator i feel like that movie kind of showed that he has he still has obviously like strong chops as far as sci-fi goes yeah that movie felt a little bit more muddled i almost feel like he'll probably do really well in this space and he probably in his career trajectory this is probably like the best move for him coming off the creator obviously it wasn't the biggest movie financially yeah but it's still like a pretty solid movie and it got a ton of praise for what it was also original movie original storytelling original script not based on any ip or novel like that's tough yeah to pull it off high high budget you know sci-fi in the modern era of movie making that is no mean feat yeah and a lot of people love the movie and it is a very solid movie yeah but yeah absolutely like him now dipping into a world where there's an established franchise tons of movies based on Thor specifically, but also you've got to start to raise the stakes as we kind of get towards the next couple of Avengers movies. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like the stakes are completely there yet as you know how we had this whole run leading up to like, Endgame and Infinity War yeah. with Thanos it's being different. built up. It's so different. It's different. And they've got to figure out how to raise the stakes so that when we get to Kang Dynasty, yeah. Kang 
or whoever the big villain is feels like, yo, this guy's going to kick ass. Seems like it is still, because even in these press releases, they've been talking about it as if it's still the Kang Dynasty. So right. We don't know what it's going to be or what's going to happen, but yeah. I think a lot of stuff is still up in the air, but I still think they have time to kind of establish a new direction still. Mm. They don't have to serve us Avengers in 2025 and 2026 or whatever they plan to. Like they can yeah. take their time with that. Yep. And uh, also like, you know, if we are going based on anything, based on the slate of movies that we did get before, it doesn't seem like we're going to get this move like Thor 5 anytime soon anyways. Right. So they got a ton of time to figure all this out and move in new directions and all that kind of stuff. Like Bob Iger said, quality over quantity. Exactly. And if it takes a year, if it takes 18 months to figure out what the story's going to be and the plot and how it fits into the bigger puzzle leading into Kang Dynasty, take your time. Yeah. You can move these dates forward if you have to or back, whatever it takes. Just give us the good stuff. Absolutely. In non-Marvel but still sci-fi news, Eric Roth says that he wrote a new film for Denny Villeneuve that is about space and time and is very lonely and certainly about eternity. A lot of people are saying it's rendezvous with rama which follows a team of astronauts going to explore a giant interstellar spaceship hurtling towards the sun apparently it's described as arrival on steroids okay that sounds really cool original science fiction time travel uh or loneliness and just time in general i think it's based on that book rendezvous with rama is uh i'm not familiar with it yeah but um if it's based on a novel and based on some ip there and I guess it's done pretty well to get the attention of a studio that wants to actually make it. Yeah. And that's good. Those two kind of working together. That sounds kind of fun. Yeah. It's very interesting. Up my street. I love, I love some good sci-fi. Man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the writing of an Eric Roth with the filmmaking of a Denny, like that just yeah. feels like it works really well. And as a follow-up, like, you know, we're still waiting on Dune part two, which was supposed to have released by now. That's going to moved into 2024. So if this is his next project and that's in the can, Yeah down so absolutely down. and yeah. also you know last year i got margot robbie compared her relationship with greta gerwig to that of de niro and scorsese or scorsese and leo mm. so um she she was saying that kind of in jest right like she's basically saying like i really want to work with you again and i want to keep making movies with you yeah but i, I kind of love that i love the pairing i always love the idea of an actor and a director working yeah. together and creating like a bunch of movies together i even love the pairing of uh, margot robbie and ryan gosling right like there's a lot of good parents that kind of came out of Barbie and yeah. I, it feels like a, a good thing to explore in all different avenues. Yeah, we've seen this, uh, you know, a few other times with a few of the filmmakers like Cameron and Schwarzenegger. We're going to do a, a review today of like Napoleon where Ridley and Joaquin have worked together in the past as well. But that particular pairing of De Niro and Scorsese and De Niro and Leo that have worked at a very high level so consistently over so many movies. If Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie they have that chemistry as filmmaker and actor and they can deliver that over the next 10, 15. That, that sounds very exciting to me, man. Yeah, and you know what? I would think it's really important for creative people to find other people that are similar to them in creative ways mm. so that they can kind of work together and create more in that thought process. Yeah, like Clears of Flower Moon, it's like Leo and Scorsese yeah. were just talking about the idea, the project based on... Uh, the book and the and the story before they thought about us working together and who's going to play who and and even, but even that is like years it's an established relationship yeah. years and years of building with each other but also finding with each other that like this is the kind of person that will be able to serve out the creative vision that I hope for. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And finding that with Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie finding each other, that's so important. And I think it's really cool to see a lot of younger creators do that. Yeah. Also, what helps is Margot Robbie is a bankable star right now. Absolutely. And in terms of getting an idea or a story greenlit that isn't Barbie sequel or something. Yeah. 
that's a move. A hundred percent. And also having like a mind like Greta Gerwig attached to that is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Are there any other pairings like right now that kind of feel like you get excited about that? I just don't think I've seen anything outside of Leo and Scorsese as consistent. Like from the top of my head, I just can't think of something right now where I'm like, oh, those two have already made a bunch of movies together and they've been fantastic. Or I don't see something that's even an embryonic stage right now. You know who I would love? Mm. Or, you know who I do love is Daniel Kaluuya and Jordan Peele. Mm. I feel like that pairing so far has yes. been really fantastic. And I hope to see a lot more with them. That's a great call. You know who else I really want to see? Like, and they haven't worked together yet, but I hope at some point they do. And I feel like they would make really good work together is Donald Glover and Jordan Peele. Because mm. if, you, if you've seen Atlanta, yep. Atlanta is like this really fantastic show, but it's really genre bending. It's a lot of different ideas that kind of get explored. Right. And in, there's this one episode, it's called Teddy Perkins. Yeah. And it's just one of the scariest, most like creepy feeling episodes of television I've ever seen. It's one of the best episodes of television I've ever seen. Right, right. And to be to think like that he has that in him yep. and it just hasn't been explored all the way. I feel like a guy like Jordan Peele with his creative mind, them working together, I feel like they would create something really special. Yeah. So at some point, not to say like this is the same thing, but yeah. I would love to see all these different combinations of young, hungry, creative actors and directors kind of working together to create awesome new stuff. There's a lot of interesting people, man. Like this yeah. is a really interesting and exciting time in filmmaking. For but sure. speaking of that, let's talk about another pair that seem to be loving each other right now. And that's uh, the newest film from Ridley Scott and Joaquin Phoenix. We're talking Napoleon. I found the crown of France in the gutter. I picked it up with the tip of my sword and cleaned it and placed it atop my own head. The most glorious, the most august Napoleon, emperor of the French, is crowned and enthroned. Long live the emperor! Long live the emperor! All right, gentlemen. So we're talking Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, okay. Before even getting into whether you like it or you don't like it, yeah. What were your expectations kind of going to this movie? You know what? On the one side, I was thinking, okay, Napoleon. I'm definitely aware of him as a historical figure, but I was I didn't learn about Napoleon in school. I don't know if you guys are taught Napoleon or what he did in school in your history classes or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I thought, okay, I know about him, but I don't really know what his full story is. And to see that on the big screen from a director like Ridley Scott with an act like Joaquin Phoenix attached to it, that's cool. That's that's kind of like got my interest at the very least. Yeah. So that was kind of like my, I wouldn't say I was like super overly interested or hyped going into that experience, but I was like, I'm interested because I don't really know the full story. And as a director and an actor attached to this project, that got me hooked in. Yeah, the one thing that I would say about that is I would have been interested in the same way just exploring the Napoleon story, but then like even just leading into it, I just heard so many different accounts of people just being like, this isn't historically accurate. Mm, so I was like, I saw that too. Yeah. And then you hear Ridley Scott being like, we'll get over it. Right. And it's like, okay, cool. Then that's not what I'm going to get excited for. Yeah. I think his his direct quote was, well, you weren't there. Yeah. <laughs> you, you didn't know what happened. And then someone, I think chimed in and said, well, the actual like documentation, historical like literature yeah. based on people that were alive during that time that wrote exactly what happened. Yeah. It's one thing to be like, <laughs> I don't know what's going on with this random person 3000 years ago, but, 
yeah. it's another thing that one of the most historically significant figures in, of all time. Yeah. You know, like that's different to, to provide some sort of context. Yeah. Um, this isn't him doing Gladiator, doing the Roman Empire. Yeah. This is literally a couple of hundred years ago. Yeah. And also like, it's so specific. Like so many people study Napoleon. Yeah. There's not, this isn't a new dude. Like this, yeah, is, yeah, like, yeah. this is like a thing that's like been massively accounted for. Already. Yeah. 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 So yeah. What'd you think? Do you like it? Uh, general no, thoughts. General thoughts. No. Yeah. I didn't enjoy the experience. I think it's actually one of Ridley Scott's weaker movies when I look at the overall resume. Mm. I thought Joaquin Phoenix's performance was meh. Yeah. It wasn't really... I thought Vanessa Kirby was probably the best part about the movie. Mm. I Honestly, I'll say this even right off top. It's it's not a good enough movie to praise it, yeah. but it's not a bad enough movie to shit on. No, absolutely. Mm. That's exactly where my sentiment is. Like, like I got through the movie. Mm. I was able to watch it. The, <sighs> See, I got through it and that makes it seem like it's just not an enjoyable experience. No, I mean, I got through it and I was like, okay, cool. Well, I know the Napoleon story now from at least from his, from a beginning to end perspective. Mm-hmm. The biggest problem I had with the movie is they couldn't get me emotionally invested in what happens to these characters. There was no personally stakes attached to what happened. I feel like they were just kind of going through the beats like this happened and that happened and then this happened. And then, but I didn't care about the relationships. I didn't care about the journey that these characters were going on. Yeah. And that unfortunately stopped me from being all the way in as I was watching this for two and a half hours. Can I be honest? Like walking in, like I didn't really have any expectations, but I oh. immediately was like, at the end of the day, like he's this brilliant war strategist yeah and they spend so little time showing us how he comes up with those strategies how there's anything related to like him becoming this brilliant genius like i understand the josephine angle yeah like, they could have called this movie josephine if they really wanted to because the most of the movies about his letters but i feel like they didn't give me any glimpses of brilliance they didn't give me like the the portrayal of this like historical figure that i've heard of for so long and it was mostly just like this really insecure guy and like it's like imagine if you're watching the social network and the whole movie is about his relationship with erica albright right i don't what what are we doing here like that's that's not where the genius movie is yeah it's funny that you say that i literally verbatim word for word wrote what you just said and it's in relation to my best scene, which I'm going to save for, for later on. But that was my biggest problem with this film as well. It's, you're right, he is supposed to be this incredible war strategist and this general and has been to so many battles. Mm. But we got hardly yeah. any, not completely uh, irrelevant, but there was very little to say, oh, wow, look what we did here. Yeah. Look, what we did. I remember watching Gladiator and I was like, yo, the way Russell Crowe is kind of like, you know, getting the troops together, the, the, these these soldiers in these kind of battles. I was like, yo, this is this is pretty sick. The way he's able to kind of like beat like the Roman horde and these lions and all these kind of different battles as he's kind of getting to the Colosseum. Yeah. Whereas his journey, I'm like, all these battles just, where is the, the brilliance and the genius they behind kinda, what he was doing? They happen. Yeah, you know, they, just, but, but they just occur. I'll be honest, it doesn't feel like anything's earned for me. Mm. You know what I mean? Like that, this, not to say like we don't watch somebody go through struggle and watch them kind of, you know, show their courage and all that kind of stuff. But really like none of the scenes feel earned. None of the the leveling up of the character ever feel like, okay, cool. I'm on this ride with you. You're telling me what happened, but you're not showing me or like making me feel a certain way on the way there. Yeah. And I feel like they chose interesting little pockets of what they wanted to emphasize, like the letters and the love story with Josephine and him wanting to have an heir and all this kind of stuff. They're like little pockets of like, I understand very important parts of the Napoleon story, but it made me walk away being like, well, well what was the story? Mm. You know what I mean? Like, 
there all these things should be part of the story, but it didn't feel like it should be the story. The story was very muddled. Yeah, even with them focusing on the relationship between Napoleon and Josephine and, and him trying to have an heir, the problem there for me was there is no chemistry between Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby. Mm. I just didn't feel any um, romantic connection between sexual tension with them on screen whatsoever. It just, there was, there was nothing there for me whatsoever. You know what though? I don't have a problem with that. Mm. You know why? Because like, I feel like the, the character of Napoleon as it's portrayed by Joaquin Phoenix, it's so driven by insecurity. Right. That like, that makes, that actually felt more real to me because mm. the idea that there's this guy who has like all these insecurities, but now he's in this very powerful position and he's like, well, I'm owed this beautiful woman. Right. And you know, she should be my queen and she should really understand my value to her. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what he's really trying to portray. So I get like this guy who really deep down doesn't feel like he, he, he is that guy, mm. but tries to really pump up and show this bravado and gravitas. And like, that's yeah. really what he wants to demonstrate, but he doesn't feel it. You can, so, you can see he doesn't feel it. So the idea of there being like a weird, disparity between their chemistry actually feels accurate to me if it happened in real life it would happen more like this i actually can understand it more so from the vanessa kirby josephine angle because clearly she's cheating on him and as it's portrayed on the movie so i can maybe give a pass on there not being any i guess sexual tension or romantic involvement in the portrayal from exactly. her side yeah she's not feeling it but from the napoleon side i just didn't feel like through the joaquin phoenix performance because even the movie the way the movie ends he's devoted kind of like his his life so much to her. I just didn't see that in the portrayal in the scenes that these guys wrote out for him. But do you see like the, what we're talking about? This is not the movie I wanted to see. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to watch Regardless this. of how you feel about their relationship or their chemistry, I agree with you. I wanted to know why this guy was so revered in Europe, conquering so many countries. It, like this whole thing about him conquering Italy... How? When? How? Which battle did he win to kind of have Italy under the French uh, Empire? Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that's kind of glanced over. Yeah. And like, and I'm okay with it. You know, choose your battles, like literally, like pick whatever battles you want. Sure. There was so much focus on who he is as a man, how he deals with things, how he deals with the insecurities and all that kind of stuff. It was taking away from what I thought we were going to try and get from his story and who he was as a historical figure. The other thing that I was thinking about is like, we're in this era of very notable accomplished filmmakers really having a lot of deals with streaming platforms, right? So Napoleon is going to be, you know, we've we've got it in the theater, which is fantastic, but Apple owns this movie Mm -hmm. and it will be a part of their library forever. And what we've seen over the last, you know, five, six years, and I'm just using this as an example, but obviously Martin Scorsese made a film with, with Netflix. It was, you know, The Irishman. It was long, not one of his better films for the most part, you know, in my opinion anyway, at least. But then we have a movie like Killers of the Flower Moon for Apple, and the theatrical cut is, that's the cut. That's the movie. That's what you're going to see on on Apple when it's available there. Mm. And I've seen all this all these comments about how there's this 4-hour version of this movie Napoleon and how this extended director's cut that's going to potentially hit an Apple that's a completely different movie and I feel like there's maybe some disconnect there in the editing process of okay, well, the movie experience we got in the theater, this is the movie, this is what we're reviewing. I'm not going to go now and spend another 4 hours yeah. watching this extra long cut and apparently there's meant to be a lot more fleshed out with his character yeah. at some point you've got to make a decision in terms of this is this is the final movie there's, yeah. there's no extra different version that's gonna give you a different pic you know paint a different picture or anything like that i, I hate the era of 
before the movie even comes out talking about this other version that they have. Yeah. Like, don't get me like any less excited about the movie that you're just putting out. Exactly. It, it's terrible for like the, the actual run up towards the movie. I feel like Snyder Cut just, just changed everything in people's perception about a fan base, about for, whether you're a fan of the filmmaker or the director or the IP or the story. It's like, no man, yeah. I want the one experience. That's it. And that's how I'm going to judge this movie on. Nothing else. Yeah. The other thing is... uh Speaking of like the eras that we're in, I feel like we're getting a lot of more villain driven stories, right? With the villain as the main character and the story that we're following. And um, they try to create like the sympathy before turning them all the way heel or a bad guy that gets us to like truly understand the character. I don't feel like we did that in this movie at mm. all. And the funny thing, the better version of that story is obviously the Joker. And we saw Walking Phoenix do that. And I can almost understand if you're Ridley Scott being like, okay, cool. Well, I just got, this guy just killed in the Joker. Wait till they get this Napoleon movie, right, right. which is trying to do like a similar thing. Yeah. I feel like this movie didn't do that. It feels like they, they, they weren't sure how to like portray him because he's this callous warmongering maniac. Yep. And on the other side, he's just like a simp. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's no, we, we get two versions of an unsatisfying portrayal. Yeah. It's kind of wild how, Ridley Scott worked with Joaquin Phoenix, literally gave him his breakout role in Gladiator, what uh, I want to say like 21, 22, 23 years ago. And here we are. He's a much more accomplished filmmaker. You would think he's got more experience, but Joaquin is a much more accomplished actor. And something went wrong during this process. Even I saw a story about how Ridley cast him. He literally just had a picture of Joaquin Phoenix, put like a Napoleon hat on, and said, oh, that's him. That's the yeah, guy. Yeah, that's that's how he cast him. Like, didn't yeah. even go through a process. Maybe was a, there was a better actor that, out there that could have portrayed this character better. Or maybe there isn't. And maybe the story that they wrote and the direction they were going to go in would have been this movie, which would have just left us feeling the way we're feeling right now. So speaking of uh, Gladiator. Yeah. Gladiator 2 was about to resume filming. Oh, yeah, and, of and course. Having seen this movie now, what you just mentioned, you're a Gladiator fan, obviously. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Are you excited more or less? I'll be honest with you. I wasn't any, I wasn't, I'm not that excited about a Gladiator sequel anyway, because I feel like that first movie is, is perfect. And Russell Crowe, Russell Crowe dies in the end. Spoilers. (laughs) Spoiler alert. If you haven't seen a 22 year old movie, Um, (laughs) I don't know what direction they're going to go in with that movie. Uh, Obviously I'll watch it because it's a Ridley Scott movie and that still gets me in the door. Yeah. But um, yeah, he's been on this run i'm not gonna lie now for a while yeah where he hasn't delivered or met my expectations of what i what i want from a ridley scott movie experience it's one of those situations where i feel like he's a filmmaker where the first half of his career is his best work and the second half of his career it's just dipped in quality when you when you compare it to someone like scorsese we feel like he just keeps getting better and better and better some people like spielberg are calling killers of flower moon a masterpiece the best he's ever done fine to have that perspective but he's still operating at such a high level and a contemporary like Ridley Scott unfortunately just isn't you know sometimes I think that Ridley Scott because I feel like a lot of the stories that we see from him are him complaining about this new thing that's happening or this whatever genre that's like dominating films and all that kind of stuff right now but I feel like sometimes as much as he says that yeah he when you actually watch a film of his it feels like he really wants to kind of still fit in like what's cool now Mm. you know what I mean like uh a part of this movie almost feels like, you know, when you watch Wolf of Wall Street. Right. And again, villain, villain led story, story that doesn't like it, it goes from the humble beginnings and tries to get us to the point where he's like this crazy, maniacal villain in the end. Yeah. But you're also trying to make them like understood and beloved and all that kind of stuff. 
But Wolf of Wall Street will have like ludicrous moments, like like a sex scene where he's just jackhammering somebody randomly. And it's like, that doesn't feel out of place in that kind of movie. Right. Sometimes I feel like what Ridley Scott's trying to do is still play ball with the younger guys. And mm. he's been so against them publicly. Like in his mind, he's he's like, he wants to be cool, but he's not willing to play ball. Mm. He wants to, you know, be hip, but he doesn't want people who are hip to be considered hip because he doesn't like what hip is. Also, it's pretty hard to be hip when it's a period piece, uh, talking about a character and uh, and a real-life human being that actually lived on this planet a couple of hundred years ago versus someone like a a character like Jordan in Wolf of Wall Street that went through the New York stock market journey that he did. There's so much to work with and sort of is more relatable because it's in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. We can kind of like connect that a little bit more. Um, But I mean, like he makes choices that feel like he's trying to be modern. Yeah, I get you. I understand you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is kind of why this kind of goes back to what I was saying about when you look at the first half of his career, look at the iconic movies he's got in his catalog. Alien, Blade Runner, Gladiator. These movies that won awards financially were very successful in this in the case well in case of all three of those movies uh, have spawned franchises as well right because they were commercially viable and people love those movies they're so iconic and they're beloved by a certain fan base and just over the last 20 years what has he made that people are talking about that's won awards that's been commercially successful that people are like oh my god Ridley Scott is killing it and we can't wait to see the next movie I feel like a lot of the cachet is still based upon the earlier part of his work that, yeah. even even that, that's how I feel absolutely I feel like oh I'm gonna watch a new Ridley Scott movie because I love Alien and I love Gladiator and I love all these other older movies that he made but I think that's kind of the part of the problem yeah because part of it is when you're watching those early movies you're like wow I've never seen a movie like this right that is the fun of it. Yeah. Now we're at this period where it's like, this feels like a Ridley Scott movie, which is boring. Right. I've already seen similar movies. I've seen the better version of this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's like, I, I don't know like what decisions he's still making. Cause that's what I kind of find interesting sometimes about like Scorsese, for example, where yeah. we'll watch killers yeah. and I'll be like, I love that movie. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of the departed. Right. Or that kind of reminds me of this movie. Yeah. But it's not a direct comparison or, this is the same genre and it yeah. feels like it's kind of played out or whatever. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. with this, it almost feels like he's doing the same thing, but he's just trying to squeeze a little bit more. And that's why a movie like gladiator two, for example, does not excite me at all. hundred uh, percent. But I could be wrong. There's a lot of young actors in there. He might have a more developed story. I could be completely wrong. Yeah. And I know we've been going pretty in on, on, on Ridley, but on a, on a positive light, the one thing that you always get from a Ridley Scott movie is from a technical point of view, when it comes to how he shoots, the cinematography, the the production design, how we kind of choreograph some of these these battle sequences, how they they're actually shot, is still pretty damn cool, man. Like the one thing that you get from Ridley Scott is at least from a production level, everything looks pretty premium. Like you see the money's on the screen there. It's just unfortunate in this case with this movie that doesn't you know really uh, impact you as much if the story is weak and if mm. the plot is weak and if like you're not on the journey with these characters. I'm glad you're thinking positively. I'm not done with the negative stuff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, run it, run it. <laughs> okay, one thing I did actually think is uh the language was a weird choice for me. Okay. The fact that everyone's speaking English mm. threw me off right off the bat for a couple of minutes. Okay. Because in my head, I was first being like, okay, cool. The whole movie's English. That's fine. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. I speak English. I want to watch a movie in English. That's totally fair. But then I started thinking like, okay, cool. Now you're France and you're fighting the English and you're both speaking English. <laughs> yeah. And like in my head, I'm just doing the math and I'm like, 
there's something throwing me off about this experience. Right. It's not helping me enjoy this more. It's actually making me question stuff. I, I, don't, I don't like it. Yeah. And uh, I actually think a little bit of it, like maybe there, it'd be cool to have some English moments and maybe you could pretend like, you know, he was super fluent in English or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to take historical liberties, just throw that into the mix. Something, as well. man. Yeah. Like, but like I was dying to hear somebody just scream like Sacre Bleu or something like, you know what I mean? Like right, I just wanted right. some real French to, like, yeah. to make it feel more legit. Number mm-hmm. one. Number two, isn't it crazy? I don't know if this is historically accurate, but in the movie, they portray this idea that he wants to have an heir. So as a process to confirm if Josephine was the problem for getting pregnant, that's like kind of how they phrase it. But like if she can have a baby or if if he's the one that's having a hard time, obviously there's no science back then to like confirm this. It's just like a hunch. It's like, ah, it seems like she's the problem because she seems mean. But like the, the way they test it out is they get a different girl and he he basically gets her pregnant as a trial basis. So he basically has his bastard child yep. as a trial to make sure that he can have an heir. Mm-hmm. What a crazy wow. world people lived in before. I know. Before science, yeah. like, uh, I, I'm so glad of where we are. The interesting thing is going to be in the future, in like 50 years, people are going like to look at us now and be like, I can't believe they did this to yeah. like do this. I can't believe they had sex to create a child. Yeah, you know, we just picked like, like yeah. the height and the, you know, the, uh, the physical attributes and we just made it in a lab. Wild, wild stuff. Yeah. But uh, all right, let's get into our categories. As far as best character goes, I feel like you already mentioned Josephine, right? Yeah, Vanessa Kirby as Josephine. We um, didn't go into detail with her. Right? Yeah, look, I've been a big fan of uh, Vanessa Kirby. Um, she's in the Mission Impossible movies. She's also in The Crown. Uh, later season has dropped on Netflix. I haven't actually got around to watching that so i'm familiar with her work and uh, i'm not if i'm being honest okay so yeah yeah, like i said i'm familiar with her work and like i said i thought wasn't a performance that blew me away or anything but it was for me the the strongest character and the strongest performance when you compare it to walking phoenix who i wasn't a fan of in i agree i actually really liked her performance i felt like the character was written weird sometimes Mm. and the choices she had to make sometimes were kind of off but uh that's not, again, that's not blaming her. But the interesting yeah. thing is she was also my best character. But I think a more interesting thing is going to be to see where she kind of goes forward. Because obviously she's somebody that studios are starting to believe in. Yeah. Marvel is looking at her as a potential for Sue Storm and yeah, Fantastic yeah. Four. So like it's a lot of investment going on here. So yeah, yeah. I feel like at the end of the day, the portrayal that I saw from her at least makes me go, okay, cool. Like I can watch this person. I don't know if I'm like a fan all the way there yet, but it's promising. It's yeah. promising. I, I promise you, if you watch her stuff on like The Crown, and I know you're not a big fan of the Mission Impossible movies, but she's she's really, really good. And actually, just speaking of like best characters, if we had a little bit more character development with that Russian czar as an opposite to Napoleon, mm. that would have been uh, interesting because I, I was kind of getting into that a little bit as the movie was progressing, but I feel like we didn't get it all the way there with who he was and what he was bringing to the table because mm-hmm. it, it felt like it was like France versus Russia during that time. That's fair. What yeah. about uh, as far as best scenes? Where'd you end up? So this kind of goes back to uh, what you were talking about earlier on. You know, this film is supposed to be about Napoleon being this incredibly intelligent, genius, you know, war general. And the only scene that I could think of that really articulates that in the movie. Can you guess? Is the battle scene. Go for it. Is it uh, Austerlitz on the ice? Yeah. There we go. It's literally the ba- yeah, like the battle scene when these soldiers are sunk- sinking into the ice because Napoleon and the French have the higher ground and they're shooting all these cannons. And they I set that up great. It's like yeah. this idea that they're, they're making them think they're winning by lulling them onto the ice. And right. then once they have them there... They just drown them. Yeah. And it, it's a really crazy thing to see because 
you know, you're, on one side, you're almost like impressed by like, wow, he actually pulled that off. And then the other side, you're watching people plunge to their deaths. Yeah, yeah. Frozen. And it's like, uh, it, it's really interesting. That was easily my, number one is my best scene. Yeah. Or number two, the most visually striking scene of the entire movie. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more. I just feel like they nailed it. In this particular scene, if we just had one or two more other scenes like this that really drive home what incredible mind this this man had because mm-hmm. at the end of the film they talk about these 50 60 battles that he won and why did he win them how did he win them yeah and we just didn't get that articulated in this movie i feel like the, my, my thing is like uh as much as i want to see the battles i want to see the stuff before that mm. like i want to see the, the planning the strategy yeah. yes like show me that like mm. i want to know why he's a genius like yeah. come okay, let's do that i don't i do not I don't, I don't just want to see like a very simple story of like he was humble on the start. He won some battles and then he got appointed and now he's a hypocrite. And before he was saying he didn't want there to be a king and now he is the monarchy and like right. all this kind of stuff. Like I get the, the basic story that you're telling, but it didn't get me to the point where I was like very excited about this character. Right. I wanted to see, which obviously is a very interesting story when you think about like the idea of somebody coming from nothing or like relatively nothing and being like, you know what? I, I can be more than this. Mm. I don't even want control. I just want to be the best leader. And like, there's this idea of leadership that he really could demonstrate. And then you kind of see him become the hypocrite and lose those war strategies. The movie that's really good is almost like there. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it's just, it's not executed. Even where the movie starts and we pick up Napoleon, he's already at a pretty solid position in the French yeah. army, like as a strategist. Mm-hmm. How did he get there? Yeah. yeah like yeah, what's yeah. the actual backstory of this kid growing up in France? What, what did he do to even get to that position? Yeah. I, I almost feel like uh, this would have been better served, obviously, as if it's a series, it's a series, but maybe as like a trilogy or something. Like, I don't know if there's an audience for that. But, uh, yeah, you're, you're kind of right. Like, there's just, whatever that we got for this movie is, like, it's just the tip of the iceberg. We should yeah. have gotten so much more. And uh, I, I almost, think the series works would work way better. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Like, over a long period of time, I think they could really do some really interesting stuff with a character like this. Yeah. With all the relationships, yep. all the Josephine stuff. If this was a series, it would be a really great series. Mm-hmm. I do not think it works as a movie. Me too. So, as far as star rating goes, zero being the worst, five being the best. Where'd you end up with this one? When we're two point five, it wasn't you know it was it was watchable. There was some things there that I was entertained by, but unless you have a plot and a story and characters that I'm emotionally invested in, where I care about what the payoff is. I'm just not going to care. And unfortunately, this movie did not make me care about Napoleon and his relationship with Josephine or even get across what an incredible war strategist this man was. Mm-hmm. I agree. I went with 2.5 as well. I feel like there's still glimpses of brilliance from Ridley Scott, but I'm not quite sure what this movie is or who it's for. And uh, it's still a great looking movie. I'll say that much. It has some incredible performances and some epic battle scenes. Yeah. A hundred percent. All that stuff that you want from Ridley Scott is still there. Production design, cinematography, fantastic. Technically brilliant. Still there. Yeah. But it lacks direction and it lacks identity. And mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest thing. I feel like this movie doesn't do justice to the Napoleon movie. It doesn't do justice as a Josephine movie. And in the end, just like the ending, you're kind of just left flat. Yeah. And it just lingers and it ends. 
Yeah, any other thoughts about Napoleon, by the way? Yeah, when you just told me, uh, and reminded me rather, that Gladiator 2 is currently in production, I was just like, I'm like, again, I don't have too many expectations about Gladiator, but now having just watched Napoleon, the bar has gone even lower. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Honestly, like, after saying what I just said before, it, I really do feel like a guy like Ridley Scott has so many ideas and he mm-hmm. wants to execute so much, he might be better off like trying to make the next Game of Thrones and like, had this been a series that was given a tremendous budget, I bet it would have been an amazing series. Mm. But the fact that he had to cram it in into like a sitting experience at a movie theater, I feel like he had to sacrifice a lot and sure. it didn't pay off the way yeah. he wanted it to. Unfortunately, it is what it is. But that's our thoughts on Napoleon. Let's get into the last segment of the show. Jumba, can you hit me with your recommendation for the week? I certainly can. I'm going to recommend arguably, maybe Ridley Scott's best movie. It's Alien from 1979 i have previously recommended aliens the sequel by james cameron but it really was alien that put both ridley scott and sigourney weaver on the map it was ridley scott's like second movie and horror science fiction suspense and well-earned scare jumps i just feel like maybe it's his best movie it spawned a very popular and successful franchise i remember watching it when i was a kid on i think vhs and i think then there was like a 20 or 25 year anniversary that i watched when i was a teenager Mm -hmm. and it was pretty cool to kind of watch this movie once again in the theater on a a re-release and as long as you are locked into this movie in in a dark room it still has an emotional impact on you. So it is rewatchable in that sense. And so you, if you haven't watched it, I highly recommend checking out Alien. Yeah. Um, so for me, I wanted to recommend a movie where the villain is more realized and well explored. So I'm going to go with one of the best villains in film history. I'm talking Darth Vader. So I'm recommending Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. All right. So uh, obviously those films, uh, they have a kind of interesting life cycle. The franchise of Star Wars in general, but especially the prequel trilogy, right? I feel like people appreciate these movies a lot more now than they did when they first came out. I think even more now in this moment, after the sequel trilogy, after all like the stuff we're kind of getting these days, the way people love the original trilogy, Mm. I feel like now people, at the very least, they might not love episode one or episode two, but I feel like it's almost universal that as Star Wars fans, we love episode three. You know what I've I've noticed is it could be even a generational thing. The people that literally didn't grow up watching the original trilogy, but did grow up watching the prequels, the prequels they are they are so fond of that uh, experience now as adults yeah. when they look back on it with nostalgia. That's because, you know what, when you do go through your Star Wars nerd phase when you were a kid and you get to like go and deep dive into this world, episode one, two and three is like really serving for a nerd, mm. right? There's like all this little, there's weird little nuances and context that you get that really make the original movies feel so much cooler. And then they just explore so much more of the world. And I, I feel like it was the mythology that we love mm. mixed with great execution as far as visuals go, obviously. And also from a story standpoint, like episode three really pays off what you want it to do. It's creating one of the biggest villains ever in film arguably the biggest and greatest villain film the task of doing that is ridiculous and you to see them actually go through the process with episode one and get such a bad uh reception yeah and then go to episode two and still have a terrible reception but then to come to episode three and be like okay cool no we figured it out yeah and to finally get to that place i think that's very satisfying not only in terms of telling the story but as a fan 
that is massively satisfying. To figure it out on the end is like the most important thing. Yeah, I remember going to the theater watching all these prequels and the mood coming out of episode one and episode two versus the mood coming out of episode three with just people leaving the theater. Mm-hmm. It was a night and day difference. It, it, I feel like it's uh, the kind of movie that if you're like really like, oh man, episode one was so disappointing. Such a bummer. I can't believe that happened. Then you're like less of a Star Wars fan a little bit. Then you go to episode two and you're like less of a Star Wars fan a little bit. But then you come out of episode three and you're like, you know what? No, this is my shit. Yeah. I am back. I'm back. <laughs> I'm back. And uh, yeah, so that's my recommendation. We're talking Star Wars Revenge of the Sith. But that's everything for this week. John, where can anybody find us? We are at Screen Off Script on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube Shorts, and Twitter. We're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And listen, do us a favor. Did you agree with our review of Napoleon? Let us know in the comments. You can do this on Apple by writing a review. But instead of reviewing the podcast, review our review of Napoleon. But it would really go a long way on helping our show get found by new audiences. Awesome. Thank you for checking us out this week, guys. Take care.